say an eternal yes. Remember being in a revival where the preacher was telling people, say an eternal yes. Don't try, Jesus. Say an eternal yes. I'm in all the way. I was just thinking as we were singing that song, a confession of following the Lord. I'm closing in on 60 years as a believer. In about three years, it'll be 60 years. I'm just an old person. That's a lot of believing. I said, how can an eight-year-old be transformed? Well, you'd have to ask my parents about that. But I know I was transformed that night when I went to the altar, and uh, he radically changed me. I know he did. Well, it's good to see all of you. Uh, this is day 38 of 40 days of decrease. It's been quite a journey. And every, every contribution that Alicia Chloe gives to that study is more than a day's worth of considerations. Uh, just some neat things. Um, day 13. Anybody remember day 13? If you had your book with you, you would. <clears throat> it was when she talked about the two times that Jesus was anointed. And the fast that day was stinginess. But uh, we're going to look at that, that section of the Bible, the New Testament, what happened the last week of Jesus' life. Now, Friday, <clears throat> we have a, a good Friday service, communion service, to finish up the 40th day uh, of our journey together. And then Saturday, we kind of got an important thing going on, don't we? You want to tell everybody? You want to remind everybody? <laughs> Yeah. Any of you people like Waffle House? You have breakfast there? Immobile. I think the Lord has called me to be an evangelist at Waffle House. <laughs> a Waffle House evangelist. Uh, Tim Pippins and I <clears throat> meet every Wednesday, if we can, for breakfast at the Waffle House right down here. So we, we know the people who work in there. And Courtney came over to wait on us. She even knows what we're going to order. But I've talked to her before, and she's got small children, and invited her to church, and, and I asked her what she was doing Saturday. And she said, well, I've asked for it to be off, since there's a, I think there's a church, uh, is that your church having a, an egg hunt? And I said, yes. <laughs> that, that be us. <laughs> I said, yes, we are having an egg hunt, and uh, with a petting zoo, and so... I hope this is the time she says she's asked off. I said, well, we're going to believe that you're going to get, a, get that day off. And um, 
You know, it's kind of like what you shared in your Sunday school class about every opportunity, every person you meet, you never know where they're at in their life and what's going on in their life, and they just might need a, an encouraging word from someone. And uh, she, she's just a, a real sweet lady, and um, she said, I have to work most Sundays, and I said, I understand that, so you got a couple of days when you think about it, just uh, ask people what they're doing with their small children and, and bring them here. It's going to be, it's going to be great. Those animals will never be the same. <laughs> They'll probably have to have counseling <laughs> when a bunch of kids together get a hold of them. But um, we're going to look, and we're going to mainly look at Mark's account of these last days that Jesus had. Um, on that 13th day of uh, 40 days of decrease, where Alicia Chloe talks about that Jesus was anointed twice, <clears throat> one of the times was in, um, if you can go ahead, you can just go ahead and put that first uh, graphic up. Um, this is a timeline, and this is the first half of that week, beginning with the Friday before the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Friday is when Jesus and his disciples arrived in Bethany, and uh, this is where, um, on, on that weekend, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Now, four days um, later, on Tuesday, an unnamed woman in a house that belongs to Simon, who's known as Simon the leper, a woman comes in and anoints Jesus' head. So he's anointed twice. And uh, we're going to just leave this up um, because we're going to put the rest of the week up here in just a moment. But we're just going to leave that up for you to track this with me. We're going to read from Mark chapter 11 where this is the start of that last week where Jesus comes in on Sunday, Palm Sunday, as we know as Palm Sunday, and uh, all of the four Gospels record that particular event. So if you're tracking this with me, it's in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Uh, make a note of that, all right? A mental note. He comes into the, the temple area after he's entered into Jerusalem. And so it says the next day, which would be what? Monday, okay? The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree uh, in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no man ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. In verse uh, 15, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the, ben and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry any merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, 
Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, which ends Monday, right? Now, what, what stands out to you as we read this? Anything stands out to you? <clears throat> the, like Matthew reads where when he comes into the city on Palm Sunday, he cleanses the temple on Sunday. Mark records, now I say Matthew records it, it looks as though that he's doing this on the same day. But Mark specifically says when Jesus gets in, he walks into the temple area, and what does he do? He looks around, and because it's late, he leaves. And he goes back to Bethany with the disciples. That's where their quarters are while, while this week is going on. He does not spend any night in Jerusalem this last week until the night he's arrested and he's in there all night being interrogated and mistreated and all of that. But until Thursday night, he is, they leave every night when it gets late and they go back to where they're staying, whether it's with uh, you know, Mary and Lazarus and them or wherever their quarters are, they leave. But it looks like Mark makes a point that Jesus looked around, looked into the temple area, kind of surveyed what was going on and left. And maybe it was like, well, I'll take care of this tomorrow. But you see that now not all of them are dating as you're reading this. The evening that Mark records that Jesus is cleansing the temple is Monday. That's when Mark records that he's cleansing it. And on Monday, Jesus speaks against the fig tree when he comes in, before he cleanses the temple, Mark has it in chronology that Jesus sees a fig tree, goes over, finds out it doesn't have figs, and places a curse upon it, and then goes into the city and cleanses the temple. If you're following the graphic, you see the Gospels in the timeline, and, and it's got the different passages. I don't know if you have a chance to write any of these down, because these kind of synchronize together. You remember that John, John doesn't record hardly any of this. He records in chapter 12 the um, entrance into the temple and, um, or the arrival in, in Bethany in 13, the entrance into the temple. And from then on, it's all about Passover meal. He washes the feet of the disciples in chapter 13. And 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is this large section of dialogue that is reserved for that night. Now, if you go over to Matthew, Jesus comes in, I think it's recorded in Matthew 21, Jesus comes in to Jerusalem in Matthew 21. So that means 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and the first part of 26 is squeezed into that week. In, in chapter 26 is where they get to you know, the arrangement for the Passover meal. So you have, you have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke a large dedication of that. 
John does not record any of those wonderful parables in Matthew. But John tells us that if he had enough writing material, he could write a lot more than what he was writing because there was so much to write about. So we kind of realize that when they were writing, do you think that they were writing because the Holy Spirit was selectively telling them, write this? Has to be. If they just wanted to write from memory, we'd have a much bigger book. But the Holy Spirit is pressing on them. So not all the gospel writers are dating this. Mark is the one writer that starts about this is the day, and at evening, as you see, the latter part of verse uh, 19, he says, when evening came on that Monday, they went back. Uh, note the graphic, Mark 12, 20. I think uh, on Tuesday, it starts um, what's happening on Tuesday. And if you look in Mark 12, 20, it talks about in the morning, they went and saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed. Okay, this is Tuesday. If you want to write Tuesday in the column of, of your Bible, because it's going to get really interesting when we put the next uh, slide up, but not yet. Just hold off on putting the next slide up. I want it to be a surprise. Uh, read with me in Mark 11:20. I don't have the scriptures up on the screen for this, but if you have your Bibles, follow this is Tuesday, this is the beginning of Tuesday. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. I mean, it's already dead. I mean, it's, it's got leaves, it's dead, dried up dead. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt it in their heart, but believe what they say will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask, that fig tree was an illustration of faith. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, as that your heavenly Father has, may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem. This is still Tuesday. They arrived in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders came to him, and they challenged his authority. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. They challenged his authority. What do you think they were challenging his authority about? What he'd done the previous day. Yeah. He was, he was making shambles of the business that was going on in the Temple Mound area and driving all of the merchants out that had set up shop there. Besides, what was going on there wasn't because they were buying and selling. They were cheating the people. They had dishonest weights. Uh, people was making a killing off of people who was having to worship the Lord with these sacrifices, and they knew the people had to buy it, so they were cheating them out of money. This is why Jesus called them not making God's house a house of merchandise. He says, you've made it a den of thieves. You're, you're, you're stealing from the people. So there was a moral principle, not just that the house was supposed to be called a house of prayer, that the activity there was not just unwanted, but it was immoral. It was unethical. So they challenged Jesus' authority, and they said, uh, 
who, who has given you the authority? And Jesus, you know how Jesus answered, right? He said, well, I will, I will tell you who's given me authority if you'll a- answer my question. John's baptism. Was it of heaven or was it of man? And they kind of rallied around and discussed it and says, well, if we say that it was of heaven, he'll ask us, why didn't we believe it? And if we say, well, it's of man, then the people around us are going to be upset because they believe John was a prophet. So they refused to answer. And Jesus said, uh, when they said, we don't know Jesus, this is uh, uh, verse 33, I believe it is, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. When Matthew and Luke record the ruler's challenge, it's in uh, Matthew 21 and Luke 20. So Luke only says when Passover was approaching, this happened. But Matthew says two days before Passover, this happened. So Matthew is dating that day as Tuesday. So why is that important? Um, All of these parables, all of these parables in Matthew, Jesus gave on Tuesday. All of them. How do we know that? Well, here's the next graphic, and it's got an interesting start to Wednesday. So can you read it? Wednesday, nothing is mentioned about Wednesday in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nothing. Now, you can Google timeline of the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus. You can, you can check all the chronologies, <clears throat> and almost without question, without an exception, there may be some that says, well, this could have happened on Wednesday, but we're not sure. Things might have happened, and probably they did happen on Wednesday. It's just not recorded. It didn't mean nothing happened. It's just it wasn't recorded. So why is that significant? Um, in Mark 14, verse 1, like I said, we're focusing on Mark. It says, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, which makes it Tuesday. Because the day of Passover, the first day of Passover was Thursday. And so it says the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So while Jesus is in Bethany on Tuesday, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So this is the second anointing. Within four days, Jesus is anointed twice by two different women. We know one was Mary. We don't know what this woman's. One was on his feet, one was on his head. It was for burial. Both times, the disciples thought that it was a waste of money. Not just Judas, because this was, this was something everybody realized what that represented. It was saved for probably somebody very special in their family for their burial. And here they are pouring it on Jesus, on his feet and on his head. Both times Jesus squelches this rebuke. And both times he tells them, leave 
her alone. What she's doing is for me, is to anoint me for my burial. And so here's Tuesday going on. Matthew 26, 1 says, When Jesus finished saying all these things, he said to the disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. So Matthew is placing, and, and chapter 26 is where the Passover starts taking place. So why is Tuesday just chock filled with this? Do you have any idea, just speculatively in your mind, why Wednesday? Nothing recorded? Or was it a day of rest? Could be. I haven't thought about that angle, but that is a very interesting thought. Um, let me ask you this. <clears throat> Jesus knew he was going to be crucified. But he also, from what he tried to prepare the disciples, he knew that he would suffer. Do you think he had any idea how much he was going to suffer? Hmm? Probably. I, I, would, I would think that he... And also look at the growing animosity toward him. The hatred toward him. Jesus came into the city those days confronting the establishment. That was not his style. You, you do not see him doing this. Most of the time he's ministering outside of Judea. Almost three-fourths, if not more, of his ministry is recorded up in Galilee. So he's not even getting near their domain down there. <clears throat> but when he gets there, they're constantly harassing him and challenging him. But he hardly ever goes in with guns blazing, so to speak, doing things and challenging him until this week. Except one other time. Do you remember? When he came in and challenged them right off the bat at the start of his ministry. There's two anointings of Jesus for his burial, but there's also two temple cleansings. One is in John chapter 2. In the early part of Jesus' ministry, his mother, his brothers, and he are on their way to Jerusalem for Passover with his disciples. And he walks into the temple on the front end of his ministry and he cleanses it. Remember that? When he's challenged... He's not challenged by his authority. You can look at John 2. He's not challenged by his authority. They didn't come saying, who gave you the authority? This is what they ask him. What miracle are you supposed to do to show us that you can do this sort of stuff? And you remember what Jesus said to him? This is at the front of his ministry. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Isn't it interesting that they remembered that statement for over three years later, and that was part of the trial of Jesus to say that he was claiming to do certain things that he could never do. But John explains it in a kind of a parenthetical way. 
that he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. So here he goes. Most of his ministry, he is not in a confrontative way challenging the established authority in Jerusalem. But in this week, the last week, he is. And immediately after he cleansed the temple, the scribes and Pharisees already was hoping to get a way to kill him, but they amped it up after that. We got to get rid of him. They looked at the influence that he was having over the people, and they said, we've got to get rid of him. So I believe, and this is just my idea, Jesus knew exactly what was waiting on him at the end of the Passover meal. He had an idea that what was going to happen, and Wednesday, he just had a day of rest. And wouldn't it make sense that what was going to happen to him Thursday evening, all the way through Thursday night into Friday morning, when he'd be fastened to the cross around 9 o'clock that morning, that he would need all the energy he could have to get through it. And we might say, well, he's the son of God. He never used that to bypass the human element. He never pulled this back into possession and say, I'm going to lean on my divinity to get through this. But he did rest. I think one of the neatest pictures of Jesus in the Bible is him sleeping in the boat in a storm. And it's not waking him up. He's in a deep sleep. And I just love that picture. He's tired. He falls off and is in a deep nap. And they have to shake him and wake him up and says, we're going to drown. And, of course, they weren't going to drown because Jesus said, we're going to the other side. (laughs) They must have forgot that part. Let's cast off and go to the other side. But here's Jesus. He, He just takes the day off. I believe he took the day off to rest. To reflect. Now, what, is it, what does that mean to us? When you look at some of the things that we've been admonished to do in 40 days of decrease, day 38, about fasting certain things, look at, look at Wednesday. Here we are in the same week Jesus was in his last week, and he takes Wednesday off to get rested up and get prepared. Here's some thoughts I'm going to leave with you. I believe if there's any lesson that we can learn from Jesus is this. Fast busyness. Fast busyness. He he pushed so much into Tuesday. He did probably two days of teaching and preaching and ministry in one day. I believe that was by design. Because in my mind, he was going, he got anointed that day. He got anointed by an unnamed woman. And when he got into Jerusalem, it was on. Parable after parable after parable. And most of the parables were what? It was exposing the establishment. He was making a point 
that there's going to have to be a different way for people to walk this walk of faith. And he takes Wednesday off. So I, I really believe he modeled for us. I don't know what you're going to be doing this week that's very important, but I doubt it was, it's more important than what Jesus came to do. And you don't see him knocking himself out every day in busyness. He's focusing on what he's supposed to do, and he's giving himself to that. So fast busyness. Here's the second thing. Wednesday, you might have, I hadn't thought about the angle that Sloan mentioned, that after Mary anointed him, it was Sabbath, and then the next day was the triumphant entry. And maybe that anointing was a signal that the next day was supposed to be a Sabbath. Now listen, that was not the routine. And if Jesus was anything, he was not a person of routines. And what I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. I, it took me twice getting on the interstate to go down to our house and twice driving all the way down to Brookwood. But after that second time, I said, Buddy, somebody ought to arrest me if I do this again. And I found myself getting over in that right-hand lane. I said, whoa, no, they've got that sealed off down there. Y'all didn't do that, did you? <laughs> you take a long ride if you miss that exit. We're creatures of routine. And I think sometimes God just wants to jerk us out of our routine to stop things, to stop habit and wait in his presence and get to know him, commune with him. Embrace, this is the third thing, fast business, fast routine, fast having everything. And if you're OCD, God help you. <laughs> because I've got a little bit of that in me. The light bulbs have to be all the same tint. I, I told people down at the district office in Montgomery, some, somebody needs to get up here and change these fluorescent bulbs. I can't hardly pay attention. Y'all got all kind of different tones of light in this room. How can you expect people to pay attention? And, and people like me, we, we like things just in a certain order. And sometimes God just wants to put a little bit of a change in us for us to think about what's going on, not just do things out of habit. I really think that Sunday we ought to intentionally say, I am not going to worship every Sunday by habit. I'm going to be, I'm going to worship by intent. I'm going to love God. I'm going to express my love for him. Because if, if not, we can get into a routine. We can do the same thing every week. We can pray the same way. We, and I think we need to fast routine. Here's the third thing. As Jesus did, we need to embrace the struggle of life. And humanly, we don't want struggle. We want everything to go smooth. And Jesus is going to face the most disruptive thing of his existence when he was on this earth, when that Passover meal was over. It was going to be on. And he embraced it. He struggled in the garden. But if you remember in one of the Gospels, when he started the Passover meal, he looked at him and he says, I've really waited 
with eagerness to have this meal with you. This, is, this has been what I've been, I've been looking forward to this. He embraced, why did he embrace the struggle? Because he knew what was on the other side of it. And I think sometimes we don't want to have anything disruptive in our life. We don't want to struggle. But when we find ourselves in a struggle, we need to embrace and say, God, what do you want to do in me through this? Instead of just, I rebuke that. That's not of God because it's making me uncomfortable. I had someone tell me, well, that not is in the church in Jacksonville. They volunteered to help in children's ministry, and the first Sunday they quit. They quit because the kids were bad. And they said, we, I don't feel led to do that anymore. <laughs> now, they're kids. <laughs> what do you expect? <laughs> but i like, yeah, you, you need to feel led. You need to feel led. But they quit because it was uncomfortable. Embrace those things. Here's number four. Reach beyond yourself for heaven's help. Especially if you tend to be a person who wants to fix things. And it's a little humbling to admit sometimes, God, I can't fix this. And Jesus could fix it. He could have shut it down, couldn't he? He could have shut it down. But what did he do in the garden? He was praying to his father for help. He was reaching beyond himself. And this is all this last week. Everything I'm sharing with you is tied up into these few short days. He, reached, he, he gave us a model of, I, I can't fix this, but you, Lord, I'll trust you. And, and that is the next one is trust the Lord. Decide that you're going to trust the Lord. What is, basic, what is the basis of trust? How do you know you can trust someone? Because they tell you to trust them? <laughs> Experience? Relationships? You trust mechanics? You trust every new mechanic you come in contact with? Experience, right? I took my old cutlass that Brenda said I had an emotional attachment to. I took it to someone. I said, I think it needs a tune-up. It was missing. And so they called me up and said, it's ready. I said, well, you didn't call me? <laughs> you, didn't, you need to let me know how much it's going to cost. Will you come get it? And I got it. it. says, there's no charge. I says, and it was a Goodyear, one of the Goodyear shops. No charge. Yeah, your, your carburetor. That shows you how old the car was. <laughs> it was not fuel injection. Your carburetor just needed adjusting. And I'm not going to charge you for that. You guess, you know who became my trusted mechanic after that? That guy at Goodyear. Not, not Goodyear. That guy at Goodyear. <laughs> Because when I took my car to him, I said, uh, is so-and-so, I said, I want him to work on my car. The experience, Jesus was trusting the Father 
trusting the Father, listen, to the degree that he refused to take his resurrection into his own hands. When he had said, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to raise it back up. He did say that, did he not? He was making a point. I can have the power and authority to lay my life down and I can also have the authority to raise my life back up. But he did not do that, did he? And in trust to the Father, says, well, of course they could trust each other. But it's this demonstration. In the, in the heaviest point of his life, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Meaning, he says, I'm trusting you for Sunday. I could, I could do this on Sunday. I could come out of those grave clothes. But I'm trusting you to pull me out. And see, that's where... Sometimes we might not admit it. Sometimes we, we're kind of like questioning God. And based on what we know of him, you can trust him. So, and here's the next thing. Seek him. Seek him first. Not when all your other avenues have come up empty. And that's a principle, too, in, in Matthew 6, is seek first the kingdom of God. It's, it's turn to him first, and not down the line somewhere. And he'll still help us. And here's the last thing. Sticking with the last week of Jesus. On Sunday morning, join the celebration. Because he defeated the one enemy that none of us like. He defeated death. I saw something the other night, <clears throat> and I stopped the TV. I stopped the TV, and I rewound it. I like having that, op that option with the newfangled stuff. I re <laughs> rewound it, and I listened. I thought it was a joke at first. And Brenda's in there, and I played it again, and I said, that guy's serious. So I rewound it and I got my phone out and I got ready to record it. <laughs> and uh, I played it back and I recorded it. And she said, well, is that, that's on the YouTube. I said, but I'm going to record it right now. And it was Ronald Reagan's son, Ron Reagan. I didn't know he was an atheist. But he was given an advertisement for freedom from religion. Have you seen it? Anybody ever seen it? I, I thought it was a joke. It was, and I said, did he just say what I said? Because at the end of it, did he just say it? I turned back, run back. He did say that. And you know what? Every time I played it, he said it again. <laughs> And he was talking about support freedom from religion because it's the largest atheist agnostic group that's making sure that religion does not make its way into secular government. And he said, and I'm Ron Reagan, and I'm not scared of burning in hell. And had a grin on his face. And that's why I said, did he just say that? <laughs> I said, no, he didn't say that. He, I know he didn't say that. Brenda says, I, I think Brenda had heard it before. She pulled it up says, yeah, he said, 
And I thought, what a statement of faith. Now, this is not a statement of unbelief. This is a statement of faith that you believe the opposite of the Easter story. You believe there's nothing beyond this life. You believe that Darwin was right. We just evolved from lower forms of animals. That Jesus didn't die and Jesus was not raised from the dead and there's not going to be any accountable before God for how you lived your life. And I thought about it. I thought about what he said and how he said it. And this is where I came to the conclusion. I think he was trying to convince himself of that more than he was trying to convince someone else of it. Because why do you make it a point of mentioning something you don't believe in? Unless you don't want to believe and you don't want to accept the reality. And when Sunday, Christ's resurrection takes place, it's like Lee Strobel said, the resurrection killed my atheism because it is one of the most validated historical, this time, what, last year? You remember what we was doing last year? We was trying to learn lines for a drama. The resurrection on trial. And, and there is, you would have to be absolutely intentional in reject, rejecting Jesus and his resurrection if you consider the historical evidence of it. And so what we do, we celebrate that we have peace about death. We celebrate if this is the last day we live. We don't celebrate the prospects of dying, but we celebrate the hope that we have in dying and what a hope we have. Stand with me, if you will. How many, how many here have a need for prayer just with an uplifted hand, a need for prayer? Right up here, over here. Keep your hand up just for a moment. And I want some of you to look around and go and just pray with those who have their hand raised. Um, we have someone up here. We're so glad to have our guest with us over here tonight. We're going to pray for him. We're going to pray for Jackson, Alabama, the McCann's United Methodist Church pastor died suddenly of a heart attack. This is Eddie's family's church. Wonderful lady. Only 59 years of age, died suddenly from a heart attack. So Ron's up here. Why don't you join hands? If you're not near someone that's got their hand raised, but let's believe God to do something through, his re with, through the resurrected life of Jesus. And if you've got people that you know that need the Lord to speak to them, pray for Ron Reagan. Pray for people that Jesus revealed himself. Lord, we thank you for your resurrection.